Book Two, Chapter Nine A of Under the Witch's Moon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Under the Witch's Moon by Nathan Galizier. Book Two, Chapter Nine A. The Feast of Theodora. A fairy-like radiance pervaded the great pavilion in the sunken gardens of Theodora on Mount Aventine. It was a vast circular hall, roofed in by a lofty dome of richest malachite, from the centre of which was suspended a huge globe of fire, flinging blood-red rays on the amber-coloured silken carpets and tapestries that covered floors and walls. The dome was supported by rows upon rows of tall tapering crystal columns, clear as translucent water, and green as the grass in spring, and between and beyond these columns were large oval-shaped casements set wide open to the summer night, through which the gleam of a broad lake, laden with water-lilies, could be seen shimmering in the yellow radiance of the moon. The centre of the hall was occupied by a long table in the form of a horseshoe, upon which glittered vessels of gold, crystal and silver in the sheen of the revolving globe of fire, heaped with all the accessories of a sumptuous banquet, such as might have been spread before the ancient gods of Olympus in the heyday of their legendary prime. Strange scents assailed the nostrils, pomegranate and frankincense, myrrh, spikenard and saffron, cinnamon and calamus mingled their perfume with the insidious distillations of the jasmine, and spiral clouds of incense rose from tripods of bronze to the vaulted ceiling. Inside the horseshoe, black African slaves, attired in fantastic liveries of yellow and blue, crimson and white, orange and green, carried aloft jewelled flagons and goblets, massive gold dishes, and great platters of painted earthenware. There were wines from Cyprus and Malvasia, from Montepulciano and the sunny slopes of Hymettus, Chianti, and Lacrimae Christi. The almost incredible brilliancy of the assembled company, contrasting with the fantastic background, caught the eyes with a stab of pain, held the gaze for a single instant of frozen incredulity, then gripped the throat in a choking sensation by reason of its wonder. Lounging on divans of velvet and embroidered satin from the looms of fabled Cathay, set in the old Roman fashion round the table, eating, drinking, gossiping, and occasionally bursting into wild snatches of song, were a company of distinguished-looking personages, richly and brilliantly attired, bent upon enjoying the pleasures offered by the immediate hour. All who laid claim to any distinction in the seven-hilled city were there the lords of the Campania and of the adjacent fiefs of the church. Strangers from all parts of the inhabited globe were there, steeping their bewildered brain in the splendours that assailed their eyes on every point. From Africa and Iceland, from Portugal and India, from Burgundy and Aquitaine, from Granada and from Greece, from Germania and Provence, from Persia and the Baltic shores. Their fantastic and semi-barbaric costumes seemed to enhance the grotesque splendour of the banquet hall. The Romans were acquainting their guests with the exalted rank of the woman who ruled the city as surely as ever had Morosia from the Emperor's tomb, and the strangers listened wide-eyed and with bated breath. Near the raised dais which Theodora was to occupy, at the head of the table, there were three couches reserved for guests who, like the hostess, had not yet arrived. Below these, by the side of a martial stranger, 
with the air of one who would fain sweep the board clear of his neighbors on either hand devouring his food in fierce silence sat the prefect of rome endeavouring to expound the qualities of his countrymen to the silent guest interspersing his encomiums now and then with a rapturous eulogy of theodora monstrous times have robbed us romans of the power of the sword but they cannot rob us of the power of the spirit which will endure for ever the stranger replied with a stony stare of contempt beside the lord atenulf of benevento sat a tall girl with heavy coils of blue-black hair eyes that smouldered with a sombre light curved carnation lips set in a perfect oval face and seeming more scarlet than they were owing to her ivory pallor the tint of the furled magnolia bud which is perhaps only seen to perfection in italy and especially in rome she looked at the grave-faced guest with quickened eyes snatching some vine leaves from a pyramid of grapes as purple as the tapestries of tyre she arose and laying her hand on the stranger's arm said laughingly oh what a brow dark as a thundercloud in june let me crown you with the leaves of the vine perchance the hour will evoke the mood she twisted the leaves into a wreath and dropped them lightly on his head the eyes of the silent guest set in a face of sanguine colour leered viciously with the looks of one who believes himself however mistakenly master of himself there was a contemptuous curl about his lips they were thick lips and florid ah he turned to the girl in a barbarous jargon you are one of those who go veiled in the streets and as he spoke his eyes leered with yet livelier malice the girl shrank back those who go veiled no more than ordinary folk she replied then mingled with the other guests a young woman of great beauty with light hair and blue eyes sat beside young fabio of the cavalli her bare arms white as snow and of exquisite contour encircled his neck while he drank and drank now and then she sipped of the wine lacrime christi from viterbo of the greenish straw colour of the chrysoberyl someone had put red poppy leaves in roxana's hair and as she sat by the side of the youth she had the air and appearance of a corybant now and then she gave a glance at the purple curtain in the background and one who watched her closely might have seen a strange sparkle in the depths of her clear blue eyes with a look of disappointment she turned away as not a ripple of air stirred the curtain's heavy fold then her arms stole anew round the youth who drained one goblet after another as if each succeeding one yielded up a new secret to him roxana marked it well her eyes danced to his whenever fabio's gaze stole toward the purple curtain which screened the mysterious garden beyond in which the spray of a fountain cast silvery showers into branch-shadowed thickets hidden retreats and silent leafy alcoves where flowers swooned in the moonlight and gave up their perfume for love from the immobile sable hangings the youth's eyes wandered back to roxana's face but there lurked something strange in their depths am i not more beautiful than theodora whispered the woman by his side extending her marble arms before her lover you are beautiful my roxana he stammered but theodora is the most beautiful woman on earth roxana turned very white at his words she has challenged me to come to her feast she said in a low tone audible only to fabio let her look to herself and her eyes were alight with the desire of the meeting on an adjoining couch reclined the huge jelly of a man who looked like pan 
enormously swollen and bloated. His paunch bellied out over the table like a full-blown sail. His face was stained with many a night of wine. The mulberry eyes twinkled merrily. The swollen lips babbled incessantly. It was the Lord Basso of Caprara. They say that seven devils were cast out of Magdalene. He turned to Roxana. The Lord of Norba interposed. De mortuus nil nisi bene. Natura abhorret vacuum. I drink to the thirst to come. And he raised his goblet and tossed it off. The Lord Atenulf rose to his feet, swaying and supporting himself with one hand on the table. His great swollen face, big as a ham, creased itself into merriment. "'Let the wine ferret out the thirst,' he shouted, and drained off his tankard. "'Argus hath a hundred eyes. A butler ought to have a hundred hands,' shouted the Lord of Camerino. "'Wine, slaves, wine, fill up in the name of Lucifer!' "'My tongue is peeling. Wine, wine!' The Africans filled up the empty tankards. "'Privacio presopanet habitum,' opined the Prefect of Rome. "'We drink to life and the fleeting hour.' Periat moors, and the goblets clanged. "'Who speaks of death?' shrieked young Fabio of the Cavalli, attempting to rise. The wine was taking effect on his brain. Roxana drew him back on the couch beside her. "'Fill the goblets! A brimmer of Chianti, red as blood! Or the poppies in Roxana's hair! Wine from Samos, sweetened with honey! A decoction of nectar and ambrosia!' The strangers who crowded the vast hall began to join in the mirth and jollity of their Roman hosts, their oriental apathy or frozen stolidity melting slowly in the fumes of the wines. A curtain had parted, and a bevy of girls clad in diaphanous gowns of finest silver gauze made their way into the banquet hall, and took their seats as choice directed beside the guests. Peals of laughter echoed through the vaulted dome, and excited voices were raised in clamorous disputations and contentious arguments. The wine began to flow more lavishly. The assembled guests grew more and more careless of their utterances. They flung themselves full length upon their luxurious couches, now pulling out handfuls of flowers from the tall malachite jars that stood near, and pelting the dancing girls for idle diversion now summoning the attendant slaves to refill their wine-cups, while they lay lounging at ease among the silken cushions. There was a moment's silence, sudden, unexplained, like the presage of some dark event. The slow solemn boom of a bell sounded the hour of midnight. The voices had ceased. With one accord, as though drawn by some magnetic spell, all turned their eyes towards the purple curtain through which Theodora had just entered, and rising from their seats they broke into boisterous welcome and acclaim. Young Fabio of the Cavalli, whose flushed face had all the wanton effeminate beauty of a pictured Dionysus, reeled forward, goblet in hand, and tossing the wine in the air, so that it splashed down at his feet, staining his garments, he shouted, "'Vanish, dull moon, and be ashamed, for a fairer planet rules the midnight sky, to Theodora, the queen of love!' He staggered a few paces towards her, holding the empty goblet in his hand, his hair tossed back from his brows, and entangled in a half-crushed wreath of vine-leaves, his garments disordered, his demeanour that of one possessed of a delirium of the senses, he stared at the wonderful apparition, when, meeting Theodora's icy glance, he started, 
as if he had been suddenly stabbed. The goblet fell from his hand, and a shudder ran through his supple frame. By the side of the grand chamberlain, who was garbed in black from head to toe, Theodora descended the steps that led from the raised platform into the brilliant hall. Greeting her guests with her inscrutable smile, she moved as a queen through a crowd of courtiers, the changing lights of crimson and green playing about her like living flame, her head wreathed with jewelled serpents, rising proudly erect from her golden mantle, her eyes scintillating with a gleam of mockery which made them look so lustrous, yet so cold. Thus she strode towards the dais, draped in carnation-coloured silks, and surmounted by an arch of ebony. For the space of a moment she paused, surveying her guests. A film seemed to pass over her eyes, as her gaze rested upon one who had slowly arisen and was facing her in white silence. With a slight bend of the head Roxana acknowledged Theodora's silent greeting. Then amidst loud shouts of acclaim she sank languidly upon her couch trying to soothe young Fabio, who had raised his fallen goblet and held it out to a passing slave. The latter refilled it with wine, which he gulped down thirstily, though the purple liquid brought no colour to his drawn and ashen cheek. Theodora paid no heed to the youth's discomfiture, but Roxana's face was white as death, and her lips were set as the lips of a marble mask as she gazed towards the ebony arch, upon which the eyes of all present were riveted. With a rustle as of falling leaves Theodora's gorgeous mantle had released itself from its jewelled clasps and had slowly fallen on the perfumed carpet at her feet. A sigh quivered audibly through the hall, whether of joy, hope, desire, or despair, it was difficult to tell. The pride and peril of matchless loveliness was revealed in all its fatal seductiveness and invincible strength. In irresistible perfection she stood revealed before her guests, in a robe of diaphanous silver gauze, which clung like a pale mist about the wonderful curves of her form, and seemed to float about her like a summer cloud. Her dazzling white arms were bare to the shoulders. A silver serpent with a head of sapphires girdled her waist. Sinking indolently among the silken cushions of the dais, where she gleamed in her wonderful whiteness like a glistening pearl set in ebony, Theodora motioned to her guests to resume their places at the board. She was instantly obeyed. The Grand Chamberlain took what appeared to be his accustomed seat at her right, the seat at her left remaining vacant. For a moment Theodora's gaze rested thereon with a puzzled air, then she seemed to pay no further heed. But a close observer might have noted a shade of displeasure on the brow of the Grand Chamberlain, which no attempt at dissimulation could dispel. A triumphant peal of music, the clash of mingled flutes, aubois, tubas, and harps rushed through the dome like a wind sweeping in from tropical seas. Basil turned to Theodora with a searching glance. One couch still awaits its guest. She nodded languidly. Tristan, the pilgrim, he is late. Know you aught of him, my lord? There was an air of mockery in her tone, not unmingled with concern. Basil's thin lips straightened. Perchance the holy man hath other sheep in mind. What is he to you, Lady Theodora? Your concern for him seems of the suddenest. What is it to you, my lord? she flashed in return. Am I accountable to you for the moods that sway my soul? A mocking laugh startled both the Grand Chamberlain and Theodora. 
Low as the words between them had been spoken, they had reached the ear of Roxana. Watchful of every shade of expression in Theodora's face, she was resolved to take up the gauntlet her hated rival had thrown to her, to draw her out of her defences into open conflict for which she longed with all the fire of her soul, determined to wrest the dominion of Rome from Marozia's beautiful sister, she was resolved to stake her all, counting upon the effect of her wonderful beauty and her physical perfection, which was a match for Theodora's in every point. This desire on Roxana's part was precipitated by the strange demeanour of young Fabio of the Cavalli. From the moment Theodora had entered the banquet-hall, his fevered gaze had devoured her wonderful beauty. A feverish restlessness had taken possession of the youth, and he had rudely repelled Roxana when she tried to soothe his wine-besotten brain. Perchance, she turned to Theodora, remembering how Circe of old changed her lovers into swine, the sainted pilgrim no longer worships at Santa Maria of the Aventine. Theodora started at the sound of her rival's hated voice, as if an asp had stung her. End of Book Two, Chapter Nine A.